Galatians 4.21 to 31, and the message is entitled, Sons of Sarah. The Apostle Paul has clearly shown the Galatians that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham in the doctrinal section of chapter 3 and 4. The patriarch Abraham has been Paul's central figure of faith rather than Moses who represented the law. In Galatians 3, 6 through 9, and also verse 14 through 16, verse 29 and 422. The faith of Abraham preceded the Mosaic Law by 430 years, Galatians 3, 17. And the faith of Abraham was based on God's unconditional covenant while the law was based on God's conditional covenant he tells us that in Galatians 3, 8 and 10. So Paul has um, just made his appeal to the Galatians out of love as a broken-hearted father in chapter 4 here, verse 12 through 16. As a jealous-hearted father in verses 17 through 20. So Paul now finishes the doctrinal section of their sonship by calling their attention to the story of Abraham and his two sons, which is characterized by three things here. And so let me read our text here, verse 21 down to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage, with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. The sonship of Abraham here, the story of his two sons, is characterized by the three following things. First, we have the general exhortation in verse 21 to 23. Secondly, we have the spiritual interpretation. He's not going to leave us up to our own subjectivism. He interprets it for us, verse 24 through 27. And then thirdly, the personal application for every Christian until the Lord comes for us. 
28 through 31. We begin with the general exhortation, 21 to 23. Notice in 21, the Apostle Paul told the Galatians they were not hearing the law with understanding to respond properly. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? You as a parent know what he's talking about. Sometimes you'll say to your kid and they ignore you or whatever. You say, hey, listen to me. Didn't you hear what I just told you? It's not connecting. They're not connecting the dots. Paul addresses those who desire to be under the law. Paul, by the phrase, tell me, was saying, explain to me your rationale of the law to be justified. The word law, nomos, has the article referring to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so Paul asked the Galatians the question, do you not hear the law? The word here, akuo, means to listen so as to understand. You get the word acute hearing from it, very keen hearing. The word is used to reflect on the significance of God's word to appropriate to their own lives. Jesus said, take heed what you hear, if you remember in Mark 4.24. John writing to the seven churches says, he that has an ear, let him hear. Revelation 2.7. People listen, but they don't hear with an understanding for application. I, I'm, I'm always shocked with people tell me I said. Even though I spent an hour telling you what it means. <laughs> but that's the way people are. The desire of the Galatians noted was to live and uphold the authority of the law while failing to pay heed that it condemned man and it was temporary. Listen to Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Yet the law is not faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Then in 22, notice the Apostle Paul told the Galatians they were to understand that Abraham had two sons from two different mothers. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, the other one by the free woman. Ishmael was the first son of Abraham by the bondwoman Hagar. Genesis 16, 1 through 4 and verse 16 tells us. Hagar was Sarah's Egyptian slave, as you know, there in Genesis 16, verse 1. Sarah said to Abraham, see now, the Lord Yahweh has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai. Too bad. There's sometimes we should hear and listen to our wives, sometimes we shouldn't. When we shouldn't is when they're not scriptural, <laughs> and vice versa, okay? 
It's important. Hagar was given to Abraham by Sarah. They both concocted this plan on how God was going to give them a child rather than waiting upon God. So she gave her to be his wife. Ten years after they had been in the land of Canaan. God hadn't come through in ten years. I guess he's not going to come through and we better figure it out. Abram went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress Sarah became despised in her eyes. Verse 4. I'm sure she started showing at sunrise or sundown. She would make sure Sarah saw her and she'd get sideways go, oh. And it started burning. Comes back to haunt her what she gave permission to. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore his firstborn son, Ishmael. There in Genesis, verse 16. So the slave mother determined the status of her son, Ishmael. You know what his status was? A slave. She was a slave. Isaac was the second son of Abraham by the free woman, Sarah. You get that in Genesis 17, verse 1 through 19 and 21. In that passage, Abraham was 99. 13 years passed since the birth of Ishmael. Then God spoke to Abraham. 13 years, God was silent. That should never happen. Abraham was told by God, he was going to make a covenant with him, changing his name to Abraham, father of multitudes, and Sarai to Sarah. Implemented the rite of circumcision and promised that son would bear, Sarah would bear him a son named Isaac. And because she laughed, his name Isaac means laughter. You find that there in Genesis 17, the first 19 verses. In verse 21, the covenant God would make was with Isaac, not Ishmael, very clear. And in Genesis 21, 1 through 7, Sarah bore Isaac, being 90, and Abraham was 100 years old. The free mother determined the status of her son Isaac, the son of the free woman. Simple. So verse 23, notice Paul, the apostle, told the Galatians they were to understand that the two sons had two distinct births. I mean, he's being methodical, as we'll see in this allegorical teaching. In 23 here, Ishmael, who was born of Hagar, according to, listen, the flesh. But he was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. The method Ishmael was conceived as identified as according to the flesh. The term flesh, sarks, can be used in different ways depending on the context. It can mean just a physical body, nothing wrong with it, nothing evil. It can mean sin nature in another context. Or it can mean one's natural abilities. The context will determine the present context means the birth of Isaac, or Ishmael here, was based on their human 
ingenuity and ability intending to fulfill the promise of God to have a child failing in their faith. This was not the child of faith. The counsel came through Sarah to Abraham in Genesis 16, 1 through 3, by the way. The counsel was approved through Abraham's consent in Genesis 16, 4. And the counsel agreement was by Abram and Sarah and carried out through Hagar, Genesis 16.4. As you know, barrenness was considered a reproach in that a woman had a disfavor with God. What's interesting is all the wives of the patriarchs were all barren. God had to intercede to make sure that they knew that he was the one giving the children. Interesting. Notice Ishmael was born of the bondwoman, Hagar. It was never the will of God. You say, well, wait a minute, not the will of God. There's a lot of things that aren't the will of God. Evil is not the will of God, but we live in a fallen state, right? But he didn't plan it. He was not part of it. It only caused heartache and suffering to all four of them. It has been the result of constant trouble to Israel from the present day through the descendants of Ishmael, the Arabs, to the present day. Notice in 23 still, Isaac was born of the free woman according to promise. Look at the contrast. And he of the free woman through promise. So God gave Abraham the promise of blessing all the nations through him, Genesis 12, 3. And you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He told Abraham, after Lot separated from him, that he would give him the land and multiply his descendants as the dust of the earth in Genesis 13, 14 through 15. God heard the complaint of Abraham, seeing he had not given him a son, thinking perhaps Eliezer, his servant, might be his heir in Genesis 15, 1 through 3. But God confirmed to Abraham he would have a son of his own body and told him to look to the heavens and asked him if he could count the stars, so would he multiply him, Genesis 15, 5 through 6. This was years prior to the birth of Ishmael by their fleshly decisions. He didn't remember all these things. He didn't write them down and go over them and meditate upon them. So he made a stupid decision. We can do the same thing. The promise of God was to Abram and Sarah, Genesis 15, 4, 17, 6, 18, 10. The promise was to be according to God's time and God's way, Genesis 18, 14 tells us. Listen to Romans 4, 17 through 18. The promise would be fulfilled by God's miraculous intervention. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what is spoken, so shall your descendants be. Faith is believing what God has revealed. It had nothing to do with emotions or feelings or even rationale or 
or, or logic. It's what God has revealed. God said, in the beginning, God created borrow out of nothing, just spoken into being, the heavens and the earth. He's not asking for a pole. He's proclamating what he did. I believe that or I don't. If I don't believe that, how can I call myself a Christian? If I'm a theistic evolutionist, that God began and then the evolution took off on it. Well, you're a hybrid. You're not a Christian. You gotta believe Genesis is the revelation. Whether you understand it completely or whether you believe it completely and irrationally, it doesn't matter. I believe what God said and what God did because he revealed it. Romans 4, 19 through 21, the promise was despite Abraham and Sarah's dead bodies. Have you thought about their age? I mean, Romans 4, 19 21 says, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. He's pretty dead to me. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Not based on the fact that Sarah got a physical, the doctor says, yep, you guys can go for it. No. Nope. 90 and 100. Hebrews 11, 11 through 12 says, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him, meaning God, faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitudes, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. We're reading the New Testament of Paul in Romans and Hebrews, the interpretation clearly from the Old. The Old Testament is progressive revelation. We couldn't fit all the parts, but here's the fulfillment. It's all put together. You know, before the Civil War, any child born of a slave woman, be it from a free or slave man, was always considered a slave. Always. Kind of have the same thing with what Paul is pulling here. There are certain people who say they live by the Ten Commandments. They may be honest in their statement and in fact keep the Ten Commandments outwardly, but not inwardly. All I have to do is I have you ever lied? Or they say, no, you just lied to me because you're a sinner. You've lied. Have you stolen anything? Have you lusted after a woman? If you're going to want to keep the whole law, you've got to keep everything. You can't depart of it. The problem is that they have broken their understanding about the moral law and the law which is to be known and kept by the heart. One's outward, the other one's inward. The Ten Commandments accuse man and condemn man. It doesn't reward us. It sets a mark. That mark never moves. The Ten Commandments are consistent and constant. They're never lowered, like the 
qualifications for a policeman or a fireman or anything else. They've always been up there and they stay there. In Luke 18, 18 to 24, the rich man, the ruler, as you remember, is a classic example. As he told Jesus, he had kept them all, but walked away sorrowful because he had great riches. Jesus revealed he had broken the first one in his heart. His money was his God. Every person that says, I've kept, I keep the Ten Commandments, they've broken all of them. Not just one or two. There's great difficulty between religion and Christianity. Religion is like Hagar. It produces only natural men and women. Religion has to do with rules, regulations, rituals, and ceremonies, giving an appearance of godliness. Religion is sourced in man's opinions, philosophies, and mystical teachings. Listen to Colossians 2, 20-23. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principle of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh and nature. They can't stop you from sinning. They can't make you any better. Religion often contradicts the Bible and the specific teachings for salvation, not having the way of salvation. 2 Peter 2.19 says, While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Christianity is like Sarah producing supernatural birth to be one with God. There's a big difference. Through the preaching of the gospel, through the person of Jesus Christ, through the conviction and transformation of the Holy Spirit, the person is made new. 2 Peter 1, 2 through 4 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have come or have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's a person who was born again, still has a sin nature, but he has a new nature, a divine nature, and putting on the armor, walking in the spirit, reckoning the old man dead, can live in this world as an example of Jesus Christ. Not a religious person, a person who's transformed from the inside out. Born again. So the general exhortation was based on scriptural history. This is the foundation. He's not making it up. Secondly, notice the spiritual interpretation. This is important. He interprets it for us. No one can go any other way. 24 through 27. In 24, the Apostle Paul told the Galatians that this historic account was an allegory, which things are symbolic. Paul is referring precisely to what he has just stated that took place in history. The word symbolic is made up of two words, allo, 
meaning another, and the word aguru, meaning to speak. The word means to speak another meaning by story. The extended form of a metaphor with general points of comparison. It does not take away from the literal historic event. It does teach and convey practical spiritual truths, though. The use of allegory should not be applied unless the context is an allegory. So you can't just make anything allegory. There is always a great danger of teaching allegory out of context without discretion to the literal meaning, giving the literal or the figurative language a subjective spiritualizing meaning to the text. This happens all the time in the pulpits of America. The Jews would interpret scripture in four ways, not natural to the text. Let me give them to you. First, the literal meaning, the peshat. Second, the suggested meaning, the ramas. Thirdly, the meaning by investigation, the durush. And fourthly, the allegorical meaning, the sod. So PRDS were the consonants of the word paradise. When all four of these ways were attained, the joy of paradise was reached by the rabbi. It's all fabrication. Makes you sound and look smart, but you're really stupid underneath regarding the things of God. You're destroying the text. The monks and doctors of theology taught four senses distorting the text. Literal, figurative, allegorical, moral. The same text. You destroy the text. So notice the apostle Paul told the Galatians here, second half of 24 on down to 27, that the story corresponded to two covenants. Notice he chose everything. Two women, two opposing states, two opposing sons, and here now, two covenants. The old covenant came first. He says, for these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to the bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, during the days of Paul, and is in bondage, with their children. So the first covenant was from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which points to Hagar. We have already established that the law is holy, just, and good. We have already established that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ in Galatians 3.24. The issue is that at this point, Christ having come and fulfilled the law, it could only bring bondage to a person. So Hagar is made a parallel to the law. She was a bondwoman, a slave, the mother of those born of pure human means being slaves. By the way, don't miss this little thing. Paul tells us Mount Sinai is in Arabia. 
in Media, not Sinai, the peninsula, as most scholars and Bible maps tell you. All your biblical maps and scholars teach that Mount Sinai is over your Mount in the Sinai. It's over here in Midia, on the other side of Jordan. That's where Moses went. Midia, remember his father-in-law? All your Bible maps in the back that point to that, put a circle around it and a slash. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. He tells us where Mount Sinai was. Interesting. When Moses took Israel across the Red Sea, it was at the Gulf of Aqaba. Some of you have been down there with us. Down by Elat, a little further down. Not the Gulf of Suez. For he was taking them to the mountain of God, Horeb, as commanded by the burning bush in Exodus 3, 2, and 12. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. They're synonymous. Therefore, Hagar is said to be Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem who was in bondage with her children trusting the law to be righteous, as verse 25 said. Paul takes the event of Sinai and makes the correlation of Jerusalem in the days of Paul. Paul indicates the earthly Jerusalem and her children, the Judaizers, were still desiring to live by the law according to the flesh. So the bondage refers to trusting in the law to be righteous before God. The heart of the epistle is justification by faith alone. Galatians 3, 13 through 29. Now the new covenant came second. Verse 26 and 27. The second covenant was the Jerusalem from above who is free and the mother of all, born of a supernatural birth by the Spirit. Listen to his words. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Those having trusted Christ alone by faith and repented of their sins. Those being transformed from day to day, the glory to glory by the Spirit of God. Those who understand and believe the proper historical interpretation. Therefore, as it is written, Sarah is Jerusalem from above, representing grace and faith, free with her many children, verse 27 says. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who had a husband. The quote speaks of Israel when she was going to be carried away to Babylon and to be greater in number after. And Paul applies it to Hagar and Sarah. It's from Isaiah 54.1 in the Septuagint. When you read the commentary of the Septuagint, it's a capital LXX, 50, 10, 10, 70. So Sarah was the barren and desolate one, but in fact has many more spiritual children. Sarah beat Hagar. All she had was one. 
You can check that out in Hosea 1.10. Hagar had only one son by the flesh, not the spirit. So the Jerusalem from above, notice, in our text, has nothing to do with the new Jerusalem in the eternal state after the millennium. In Revelation 3.12, it says, He who overcomes will make him a pillar of the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and will write on him a new name. Revelation 21, 2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Hagar has nothing to do with that one. She's not part of it. In an examination at a Christian school, a teacher asked the following question. What is false doctrine? Up went up a little boy's hand. And there came this answer. It's when a doctor gives the wrong stuff to people who are sick. <laughs> Although the little boy had obviously confused doctrine with doctoring, he arrived at the correct definition. There's a lot of people that have wrong doctrine because they confuse the scriptures. The believer is a son or daughter of God through Jesus Christ. Listen to Paul in Romans 6, 17, and 18. But God be thanked that through, though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that from of doctrine, a form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. In Romans 6.22, Paul says, But now having been set free from sin, meaning sin nature is power over you, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit in holiness and the end everlasting life. The Bible contains many forms of teachings, as you know. And one must be true to it for proper understanding of the truth being communicated. There is figurative language such as the life of a man is like a vaporous smoke, James tells us. This is a simile introduced by the word like or as. It simply means man's life is brief. Okay? There's types such as leaven often used in the scripture and it's used for sin very consistently. Gold for deity, silver for redemption, brass for judgment. If not, the context will make it evident. There are parables, a story form that has a central message, unlike the allegory that has many details and they have meaning. The parable has a central message and either compares or contrasts. You don't interpret everything in a parable. 
A parable is putting something you don't know next to something you do know, so in knowing what you do know, you'll know what you don't know. That's a parable. A sower went out to sow seed, and he says it, and he puts a word, the preaching of the word next to it, bam, it hits. They understood it. The two covenants are not in contradiction, but consist in progressive revelation of the Old Testament and fulfilled revelation in the New. A natural transition. There's an axiom in geometry, um, uh, the whole is equal to some of its parts and no part is greater than the whole. Now, when I was a sophomore, I, I was thinking, when am I ever going to use this stuff? But it's still back here somewhere. Everything in the New Testament is the sum total of all the parts of the Old Testament. It's all put together for us. Listen to um, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11. Paul tells the Corinthians, but if the ministry of death, the Old Testament, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly on the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious, meaning the covenant of grace. In Hebrews 12, 20 through the 25, the author to the Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Sinai and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to a general assembly, the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator in the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall he not escape if he turns away from him who speaks from heaven. Whoa, Hebrews Warnings are very progressive, and they're the severest in the New Testament about those that will turn from Christ. The spiritual interpretation was based on scriptural prophecy. It's interpreted for us. We can't mess with it. Third note is the personal application. And that's what I do on a text. I tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I tell you what I told you I was going to tell you, and then when I get done, I told you that I told you what I told you I was going to tell you. Okay? But there must be application to every point. If there's no application, there's no sense just having information. Notice the personal application. In verse 28, Paul the Apostle told the Galatians that believers in Christ were children of promise. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are Children of promise. The personal pronoun we identifies the person who had trusted Christ for their salvation. We. That includes Paul. He's a Jew. Gentiles are the Galatians. Okay? Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus, the book of Ephesians. 
Paul and many of the Jews with him are included in this we. The Galatian Gentiles were saved by Paul's preaching. Now the term brethren clearly reinforces the individuals. The word brethren Adolphus means born in the same womb is found 11 times and they are born into the family of God. They have the same spiritual father. The parallel is as Isaac. As Isaac was the true son of Abraham by promise, so are Christians. As he was the only son of Abraham, so the Christian. As he was a son by promise of faith to Abraham, so are the Christians. Notice 29, Paul the apostle told the Galatians that Ishmael, the product of the flesh, persecuted Isaac, the product of the spirit. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. So as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, making fun of him when memory was going to dedicate him, well, the same thing now by the Jews to the Christians in Paul's day. Ishmael was scoffing and mocking Isaac at the great feast Abraham had for him when he waned him in Genesis 21, 8 through 9. The sharp contrast is marked by the word but, the children of promise, verse 28, the children of the flesh, 29. The animosity of the flesh against the spirit is constant. It's all through the book of Acts. The Jews persecuting the Christian. The direct parallel is made by the phrase, even so it is now. The Judaizers were sons of the bondwoman, the product of the flesh, and they produced flesh. They were persecuting the Galatians who had been born of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 11, and 6, 12. And so notice in verse 30, Paul, the apostle, told the Galatians that they needed to understand the scriptures that they taught that the bondwoman and her son have no part of God's kingdom. Pretty severe words. You guys think I'm bad. Mm -mm. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Not what do I say as Paul. What did the scripture say? That's the authority. That's the blind line. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. The authority is the scriptures, not personal preference. The scriptures are personified here. As if it's a person with the authority. The scriptures speak clearly and are to be obeyed. Notice the second half of 30, the proclamation was that the woman and her son must be cast out. The law and those trusting in the law are born of the flesh and are incompatible with those trusting Jesus by faith and born of the spirit. The law and those trusting in the law are born of the flesh and are a contradiction to those trusting Jesus by faith and born of the spirit. The one is trusting law and legalism, producing bondage, 
The other is trusting faith and spirit, producing freedom. In the court of Hammurabi, the barren wife had to provide a slave wife for her husband. Such children would divide the inheritance. A slave son was not to be expelled. The late F.F. Bruce gives us this commentary on this passage. So we see the practice in correlation in more ways than just here. The proclamation was that the woman, notice, and her son shall not be heirs with the son of the free woman, that is Sarah. The inheritance is by faith in God's promise of Christ. The confirmation of God was in agreement with Sarah's petition to cast out Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis 21, 10 through 12. Now, as Abram obeyed Sarah to go into Hagar, what a good sport, wasn't he? Hmm. Now, when she wants them gone, God says, you obey her now. Wow. And so no form of legalism, no form of works for righteousness are cast out. Look at 31. Paul the Apostle told the Galatians that Christians were not sons of Hagar, but rather sons of Sarah. Do you realize how many angles he's hit this thing? Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. That's what you do when you catechize. You're an ex-Catholic, you know catechism, right? They keep repeating things, you memorize it that way. He says, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. This is Paul's conclusion of the entire allegory. So then, brethren. He is reasoning with the Galatians. He is instructing the Galatians. They were not related to the bondwoman Hagar, the law, the flesh, Mount Sinai, in Arabia, Jerusalem that is now in bondage with their children. They were related to the free woman, Sarah, by grace and faith, by the spirit and promise, by living free, the Jerusalem from above, sons and daughters of Abraham by faith, Galatians 3, 7, sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ, Galatians 3, 26, sons and daughters of Abraham through promise, Galatians 3, 29, sons and daughters of Sarah, Galatians 4, 31, Whoever the Son has set free, he is free indeed, Jesus said in John 8, 36. And we went around this room and asked what God took you out of. And if we were totally transparent, we would be shocked. Out of all the things God has set us free, he didn't just say, well, if you only committed these 10 things, I can get you free. But if you committed all these other things, uh-uh, I can only set you half free. New creature. Everything becomes new. Divine nature. New mind. New heart. Wow. Remember the prodigal son coming to his senses, returned to his father, 
father seeing him ran. And he fell on his neck and kissed him. And it says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, to his servants, he says, Bring out the best robe, put it on him, and put on a ring in his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be married. Here's the punchline. For this my son was dead. He wasn't born again. He was born again in the pig pen. Now he's alive again. He was lost and is found. The prodigal son parable is the third parable of three parables that are a grouping. Ten lost coin, or the ten coins is one lost, ten lost, the one lost sheep, and the two lost sons. And what's the punchline of the three? Joy in heaven over one sinner, repenting. Now, every pastor has ruined that parable, teaching prodigal son sermons. <laughs> out of context, destroying what it is, a parable. Wow. The promise of God is, if anyone believes the gospel message, as you know, they become children of promise by faith. Born again, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, John 1, 13. Born of the Spirit, John 3, 5. Born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which abides forever, 1 Peter 1, 23. Born again with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3. This is what happened to you. This is what happened to me. As we believe the message of the gospel and acted in faith what God revealed that he could do and would do for us. The Christian has always been persecuted by the Judaizers, by the Roman Empire, by the Roman Catholic Church. Do not say that the Roman Catholic Church is Christian. It's religious. It contradicts the Bible. It adds to the Bible. It's an abomination. By immoral and corrupt people, by Islam, persecuting Christians. And now, by our own government in the USA, corporations, the educational system, even um, shopping centers. If you walk in with a t-shirt that says Jesus loves you or something, they'll confront you to take it off. But you can walk in with devil horns and acting like an idiot, and they won't say nothing to you. It's a dark day, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also, John 15, 20. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. 
Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says. The only one who can be part of God's kingdom and inheritance are biblical, scriptural Christians. Be careful. Christianity is being redefined by the new progressive uh, emerging church and others. Watering the word of God. Making the road more broad. Not teaching doctrine. The scriptures are the standard. The scriptures can be twisted. The scriptures are the final authority. Listen to Romans 8, 16 through 18. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs and heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Wow. The personal application was based on scriptural accuracy. Word of God is just watertight, man. <laughs> I love it. So Paul finished the doctrinal section here of their sonship by calling their attention to the story of Abraham and his two sons, which was characterized by the general exhortation based on scriptural history, the spiritual interpretation based on scriptural prophecy, and the personal application based on scriptural accuracy. You can't touch this text from what he has said. You just can't do it. Not without doing violence to it. God help us if we do. Father, thank you for your grace, your love and goodness. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that we are able to understand and to see things clearly, Lord, by your grace. We pray for every person here and those who are over the internet, Lord, that you would continue to build them up as they grow, as they look to you, and you do an incredible work in our, all of our lives, Lord. Prepare us for the things you have in this evil world, this present, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be over the internet. If you believe what you have heard about Jesus, that he's the son of God who died in your place, rose from the dead, and that he promised you eternal life through the forgiveness of sins, if you believe he is Messiah who died in your place, and in fact is sitting at the right hand of the Father. If you believe that, you can call upon him and he will forgive you of your sins. He will make a new creature of you. He will impart to you eternal life. God always requires a public confession. Jesus said, if you confess me before man, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me, I'll deny you. It's just simple that fact, just so you know where he's coming from. Jesus lays all the cards on the table. He forces no one to believe or repent, but he'll always give you the opportunity. If you want to be born again, this is your prayer to the Lord, not to us, but to the Lord. 
Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.